you know, I, I don't, um, I don't see so well without my glasses anymore. Just kind of how things go as time goes on, huh? It used to be that I would quite regularly take my glasses off when I would do things. You know, maybe I'd head out for a run and and just leave my glasses behind. But these days, I I don't even think about that. I don't go there anymore. And it's not so much that I'm just so desperately blind without my glasses, but, um, you know, I've just found that I don't feel real great about running out into the street unless I can really clearly see that the way is clear. You know, before I throw my body out into the path of a car, I generally try to not only see if, one, there is a car, um, but two, to be able to see that driver and not only to, to see their face, but to catch their eye and, and to make sure that they see me as well. You, you know, I want to know what the look is on their face before I give them opportunity to mow me down. <laughs> if they look too eager, I might hold back. You know, having clear vision is necessary. It's important. But there are situations in life where having a clear vision, it's, it's vital. Not just situations like running out in front of a car, but, you know, those situations in life where, where the clear vision we're talking about isn't so much our visual acuity but it's our ability to see the situation that we're in, to, to perceive uh, our, 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 our surroundings and, 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 and to be able to understand the dynamics that are at work to comprehend what's going on and to know where to turn. To know where to turn when our circumstances become desperate is so vital, it's so important. Deciding who you're gonna trust and how much you're gonna trust them, that requires clear sight and clear vision. You know, in the, in the passage that we're looking at this morning in Luke chapter seven, Luke gives us a, a very interesting account of one man's desperate situation that, because of the clarity of his vision, of his perception, ends up being something that causes him to turn to Jesus, which is exactly what he needed. And by the way, is exactly what we need as well. Will you do this? Will you turn to Luke chapter seven with me? We're, we're gonna look at the first 10 verses there of the seventh chapter. So uh, when you find Luke chapter seven, will you stand out of respect for the reading of God's word and I'll read, you can follow along and I encourage you to do so. Speaking of Jesus, Luke writes beginning in verse one, when he had concluded saying all of this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. A centurion's servant who was highly valued by him was sick and about to die. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, requesting him to come and to save the life of his servant. When they reached Jesus, 
they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, because he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to tell him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, since I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. That is why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Jesus heard this and was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd, following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found so great a faith even in Israel. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant in good health. Let's pray. Father, we, we ask this morning that you would give us clarity of vision and, Lord, as well, the ability to hear. God, not just that we would see the words and hear the words, but, God, that we would receive them, we would ponder them. And God, that in the midst of this time, we would respond to you. Father, we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit here today, Lord, that, that we would be taught by you. Lord, that you would use your word to transform us, to change us, to empower us, Lord, to live lives that honor you. God, we pray that from the perspective of eternity, today would matter because today you would be at work within us. We look for you to do that. We ask it all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. So if you will remember with me for a moment the context of where it is that we are picking up here at the beginning of chapter 7, uh, all through chapter 6, we, we read about Jesus um, teaching the crowds, both the crowds and his disciples. They had gone out to a remote place, out into the countryside. There on a level plain, it says that they came to Jesus, and he was instructing them on what it would mean to follow him, not just physically from place to place, but, but to allow Jesus to begin to shape the way that they were living their lives, for them to truly become his students and for him to become their teacher or their rabbi. Jesus was telling them, this is what it will look like if you follow me, if you will be my disciple, if you will put your faith in me. And then, having done that, in chapter 7, verse 1, we read, when he had concluded saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. Now, I think it's interesting uh, the way that, that Luke phrases that opening line. He says that Jesus spoke to those who were listening. But I don't think that, I don't think that what Luke is saying here is that Jesus was talking to those who could hear the sound of his voice. No, 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 I think, I think that what Luke meant is the same thing that my wife often means when she asks me if I'm listening to her. 
And she doesn't mean, can you hear the sound of my voice? What she means is, are you in there? Are you comprehending? Are you hearing? Are you pondering? Are you receiving what it is that I'm saying to you? You see, both Jesus and my wife want more than just auditory monitoring. What Luke is saying is that Jesus wants followers who will respond to him, who will hear him, who will consider what it is that he says, will submit themselves to him, and allow him to change them through this process. <laughs> you know what? When you and I gather like this, even, even when you get up in the morning and you, and you take up your Bible and you open up the Word and you, you read the Word all by yourself, what God wants from us is that same thing. He wants us to, to hear him. Not just to read the words, not just to hear a voice proclaiming what God has said, but he wants us to think about it and to respond to him. Remember back in Luke 6? Remember how Jesus told his followers, don't just say, Lord, Lord, to me, but do what I say. Do what I say. And you know, that ability... To, to do what he says. That's what we want, isn't it? And yet, sometimes it, it, it seems like it's so hard for us to pull that off. Here's where it begins. It, Romans chapter 10 tells us this, that faith, in other words, putting into practice what we believe, taking these truths that we, that we agree with, that Jesus has spoken, and, and putting them into practice in our lives, faith comes from what is heard and what is heard comes through the message about Christ. So it begins when we hear. Not just monitoring the auditory signals that are, that, that are available to us, but when we really hear what it is that Jesus is saying, when we read the word and we stop and we ponder it, when we hear what is said and we consider it and we ask the Lord to speak it to our own hearts, See, the disciple of Jesus, walking by faith, hears Jesus' words and receives them, submits themselves to them and asks the Lord to change them, asks the Lord to empower and to, to break the bonds of sin and to, to shake us up and to draw us close to him and to help us to understand, hey, God, do all the work because I can't do any of it. Change me so that I can put into practice the things that are said so that more than just saying, Lord, Lord, I can do what you command. So Jesus has been teaching and he's been teaching to those who are listening. And then he returns to Capernaum. He comes back to Capernaum, that, uh, that village there in Galilee that, that Peter called home. Uh, a, a busy, worldly place, at least compared to the other Jewish villages of that region. It was a center for commerce. It was, it was right there on the Sea of Galilee, right there on the lake, and it was also right on one of the main roads that led up towards Damascus. 
It was a, a center for government. At that time, it was the place where, where Herod Antipas ruled from. And so we read in verse 2 that there in Capernaum, a centurion's servant, who was highly valued by him, was sick and about to die. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, requesting him to come and to save the life of his servant. So here is this centurion, this, this leader of soldiers. Um, likely he was a member of Herod Antipas's guard. We, we know that there were no regular um, Roman army troops in that region at that time. Uh, but he was probably a part of Herod Antipas's guard. And, and he would have, being a centurion, would have been a very respected and a fairly powerful man. And he would have been a Gentile. And he would have been living a Roman life. And yet, this centurion had a very non-Roman attitude when it came to his slave. You see, in the Roman culture, slaves were viewed as tools. And so just like from the Roman perspective, you would discard a tool if it breaks, so too you would discard a slave. But this centurion seems to be different. He values this servant, and so he goes to great efforts to seek help for him. You know, the centurion, I really think, was different. He even seems to be on good terms with the Jewish religious leaders, speaking to them and asking them to go on his behalf. They're on his side. They're for him, and they go to represent him. Now, at this point, I want to mention something. Some of you may have noticed already that not only does Luke tell us this account of Jesus' encounter with this centurion, but Matthew does as well. But if you compare the two accounts, you'll notice there are some significant differences between them. You know, those differences actually make sense, though. Luke was a Gentile. And he was writing his gospel for the Gentiles. And so he would often focus on some of the Gentiles that Jesus encountered and cared for. And he would provide more details about their stories and about their encounters with Jesus than would the other gospels. Matthew, on the other hand, well, he's a Jew. And he's writing his gospel for his fellow Jews. And so he does record this account, this encounter that Jesus has with this Gentile, but he does so in, a, in an abbreviated way and with the focus entirely being on Jesus. And so that just makes sense. You know, the, the most amazing part of this account that we read here, to me anyway, is that this, Gentile soldier, this, this centurion somehow knows about Jesus. He knows about this, this Jewish rabbi, this Jewish teacher. It isn't a part of his world, really. And yet, he knew about Jesus. And in fact, he knew enough about Jesus that he knew that Jesus not only could heal his servant, but he knew enough about Jesus to think that Jesus just might be willing to heal 
the servant of a Gentile centurion. Now, no doubt, this centurion being based in Capernaum would have heard of the things that Jesus had done while in Capernaum. He would have heard uh, of the paralytic who had been lowered through the roof. Remember that? And Jesus had told him, your sins are forgiven, and then had told him, get up, take up your bed and walk. He had healed this man. And maybe even he had heard about Peter's mother-in-law. Remember her? Jesus had come over to Peter's house, and, and she had been sick with a fever. And Jesus raised her up and healed her as well. But you know, and we'll come back to this. I think this centurion had heard more. He had been exposed to more than just the stories of the healings. I think that he had heard Jesus teach or maybe someone had come and spoken to him about Jesus himself and the, the reason for Jesus being there. It seems that he had had some sort of encounter with the Savior. We'll come back to that. Regardless, he knew about Jesus and he sent the Jewish elders to bring him. And so in verse four, when they reached Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy for you to grant this because he loves our nation and he built us a synagogue. You know, we are always focused on being worthy or at least appearing worthy. We want others to see us as deserving of good things. We want to feel like we are worthy, like we measure up. And we often like to compare ourselves against others. <laughs> you know, comparison is worthless. Let's just say that. Comparison is such a, a, a worthless waste. It, when we compare ourselves to other people, we end up believing one of two lies of the enemy. Uh, one of the lies is, is the I'm not worthy lie. It's this whole thing of why would, God, why would God intervene in my life? Why would God have anything to do with me? I, I'm not as good as that person is. What we're really saying is I'm not as good as that person pretends to be. You know, it's like, you know, following someone's Instagram account. And man, you begin to think that all they do is eat in restaurants and go on vacations. It's just amazing, and, and there's never anything bad in their life, right? And, and so we compare ourselves to what other people present of themselves, and we think, man, I'm just lousy. Even when I do something good, my motives are bad. You know, and, and, and I, I just, I can't measure up. We believe that lie that, that we are just, we're so much below everyone else. And the enemy doesn't care which lie we believe, he'll feed us the exact opposite. He'll feed us the exact opposite. And we'll end up, we're looking at other people and we'll say, well, God, you answered his prayer and I've been way more faithful than he has. And you know, God, you, you did this for her. And, and man, I've served you longer and, and I don't gossip like she does. And except what I'm saying to you right now. And, and you know, and you know, I, I just, you owe me, God. I mean, I've made the right choices, and you owe me. You know, here's the reality. I want you to notice this. Just glance down at verse 9 really quick. It isn't this man's worthiness that Jesus notices. It's his faith. 
Oh, these Jewish elders, they are, they are so impressed by how worthy this man is. He loves our nation. He built us a synagogue. Oh, you got to do Jesus, you really owe it to him. Jesus doesn't seem to be moved by that argument at all. Jesus is impressed with his faith. His faith in Jesus. His faith in Jesus. Here, here's the thing. None of us is worthy. None of us is worthy. Romans chapter three, Paul writes this. There is no one righteous, not even one. It's a fairly broad statement. I think it covers most of you. Possibly maybe even me. No one. No one measures that. We like to measure against each other because then at least we have a fighter's chance. You know, and on a bad day, we'll, we'll measure ourselves against Adolf Hitler because we're always going to win that one. I'm no monster, at least most days, not today anyway. But that isn't the standard. Perfection is the standard. And because perfection is the standard, there's no one who is righteous, not even one. But here's the good news of the gospel message. Our God is the God who justifies the undeserving. Our God is the God who justifies the undeserving. God doesn't save us because we're so awesome. He saves us because we need saving and because he's so awesome. God isn't impressed with us, nor do we need to impress him in order for him to save us. We just need to put our faith in him. It's his goodness, not our goodness. It's about what he has done and what he does for us. Our God justifies the ungodly, Romans 4, but to the one who does not work. You, you ever have your toddler help you on a job? You know, you're working hard to get something done. You got to get it finished and, and it's a difficult task. And then your toddler toddles over and toddles everything up. And it, 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 this does not help. This does not make the task easier. They are working very hard, but you can't really call it work because it is not moving things towards the goal. Isn't that us? Isn't that us, man? I am trying. Really, I know it doesn't look like I'm trying hard, but man, I am trying hard. And yet I just, I mess it up. I don't really add to the righteousness of God other than I provide opportunity for grace to be abundant. For the one who does not work but believes on him who declares the ungodly to be righteous. Ah, oh, I put my faith in Christ that I believe on him who declares the godly to be righteous. Man, he covers me. 
He forgives me. He cleanses me. He clothes me in the righteousness of Christ. Not because I deserve it, but because he is good, because I need it. Verse six, Jesus went with them. So Jesus comes with the, the Jewish elders now and, and they're heading towards the centurion's house. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sends friends to tell him, Lord, don't trouble yourself. Lord, don't come. I know I just asked you to come over, but forget it, forget it. Since I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. That's why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. Now, it doesn't explain everything to us here, but from what he says, we can gather that the reason that he sent the Jewish elders was that he had an understanding that Jesus was this holy man, that, that, that he probably did not have standing to come before him as a Gentile centurion. And he says, man, we, you guys got it together more than I do. Will you go? Because if I just go, I mean, I won't even get close. Maybe you'll go and you can convince him to come. And I kind of wonder if maybe one of the guys who stayed back with him was like, listen, don't get your hopes up, okay? Because he's a holy man and you're a Gentile. Did you know this, that the Jewish religious leaders, they would not come into the house of a Gentile because they wouldn't want any of that Gentile's uncleanness to possibly rub off on them to make them unclean. So this centurion ponders that and then he sends word to Jesus. It's okay. It's okay. You don't need to come to my house. You don't need to come to my house. And I love his response to this. I love it for two reasons. The way he responds causes me to admire him and to think even more of him. First of all, because of his incredible humility. When this man is told, listen, uh, he's a holy man and, well, you, you are a Gentile. That's not a compliment. That's not the kind of thing that, that we tend to like to hear. And, and it wasn't the kind of thing that this man was used to hearing. I mean, after all, he was a centurion. He was respected within the community. The Jewish elders had gone to Jesus saying, man, this guy is worthy. He's top notch. He's good stuff. And yet he did not see himself as being worthy. He was a man who was used to giving orders. And yet he tells Jesus, no, don't trouble yourself. Don't trouble yourself for me. The Jewish elders had praised him. Oh, but he, he saw nothing to praise. They said he was deserving. But he saw more clearly. He saw more clearly. And he responded with humility to the reality that he was undeserving of requiring anything from God. 
here's what I see in scripture and what I know to be true in life. God embraces true humility. God embraces true humility. God loves to lift up those who humble themselves. Not feigned humility and not that fake stuff that we often do, but, but the true humility of a man coming to God and just saying, you know what? I've got no right to ask this. You don't owe me anything, Lord. But, but I'm hurting. My servant is dying. You're good. So will you do this? God loves humility. James chapter four. James says this, God resists the proud. You've experienced that, haven't you? Or maybe it's just me. I know I've experienced that. Resistance like a two by four. Yeah. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. James never leaves any... any um, Anything unsaid. I think the original Greek says, therefore, knucklehead. I, we just translated therefore, but I, I think in the Greek, it's therefore, knucklehead, submit to God. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And James says, it's not a hard decision. Submit yourself. That's humility. Submit yourself to God. And so when I come to God, I don't come with this expectation that I've earned anything from him. I don't come thinking that, man, I've got, I've got this thing dialed in. And so, you know, I know the system and I'm going to get what I want from God. But I come knowing that he owes me nothing, but that he is good. He is so good. And here's what is amazing he loves me. He loves me. And he's for me. Not because I'm awesome, but because he is. He is so good that he will love me. You know, as, as small as this man saw himself to be, he saw Jesus as being even mightier. His, his amazing humility was matched in significance by his awesome faith. You see, he looked at the situation. He said, you know, I don't deserve anything. Jesus shouldn't even come to my house. What was I thinking? I'm going to send some friends and tell them, whoa, just stop. Don't even bother. Don't be troubled by me. As humble as he was, as, as clearly as he saw that he was undeserving, the other thing that I love about this man's response is this. His faith in Jesus, his picture of Jesus was great. He saw himself as small, but he saw Jesus as unstoppable. He believed that even though he wasn't worthy of Jesus coming to him, that that didn't matter. Jesus was so incredible that he could and he would heal this man's servant 
simply by speaking the word. Look at there, partway through verse seven. This man says, listen, don't come. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go and he goes and to another come and he comes and to my servant do this and he does it. Basically the servant is saying this, I get this. I understand this dynamic. I know how this works my, my whole life. It's about being under authority and being in authority. He says, man, I know how to obey. I know how that works. I'm under authority. When the boss says, you do. And he says, you know what? I know how, I know how others obey. I have soldiers under me. And I know how to give a command. And I know that when I give it, they will do it. And if I can do that, if I have enough authority, he says, and with you, Jesus, there's no question. There's no question. Do you see what's going on here? I mean, he doesn't come out and say it. But, but what he's saying here is, I have this limited authority with these people that I tell them to do this and they do it. But you, if you say, be healed, and you happen to be thinking about my servant, can you imagine if Jesus said, be healed, just in general? <laughs> that would have been amazing. But he says, man, if you, if you just speak the words, you have authority over life. I have authority. I am under authority of, uh, of King Herod Agrippa, and I have authority over my, my squad of soldiers. But you, Jesus, you have authority over life. You see, this man saw what all men will one day see. He understood that, that truth, that central truth. You know, there is only one main truth that will be revealed when we leave this life. And that's what, what Revelation tells us, is that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. That's gonna be the one truth that every man and woman will come to understand on the day that they die is that Jesus is king, that he is Lord of all. He is savior, he is God, that it's about him. And yet this, this centurion, it seems that he got that. He knew that Jesus had authority and all that he had to do was to say the word and it would be done. Verse 9 tells us that Jesus heard him say this and was amazed at him. Turning to the crowd, following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found so great a faith even in Israel. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant in good health. He did it. It happened. You know, what happened with that servant was far less significant, I think, than what happened with the centurion. You see, I think what happened with this centurion was, was far more significant than just a smart Gentile making good use of Jesus' proximity and ability to heal. I think he not only 
had his servant be given new life, I think that centurion himself came to new life. I think somewhere along the road, he not only heard about what Jesus could do, but he heard about who Jesus is. I think at some point he heard Jesus teach, or maybe he had someone come and teach him about Jesus. And so as Romans 10 tells us, he had faith that came from what he heard. He heard the truth about Jesus, the message about Christ, and he responded to that. Dear friends, today God's word is spoken to us. Tomorrow, you will open up God's word and you'll read it. How should you respond? You should respond knowing that the one who says these things to you is King of kings and Lord of lords. That this is the word of God to us and that God has authority. And so we should come in humility knowing that God does not owe us anything, knowing that we don't deserve anything from him, but submitting ourselves to him, knowing and trusting that he is a God who has declared himself to be the one who declares the ungodly to be righteous, that in his mercy, he does what we need, that he will cleanse us, that he will remove from us our sin and guilt. If we'll hear, if we'll humble, humble ourselves, truly listen to his message for us and turn to him in faith, respond to him, put our trust in him and ask him to work. That's what our response is to be. We can't do it on our own. We've got to ask him to do it in us. We've got to ask him to be at work giving us eyes to see our own brokenness, giving us comprehension of the promises of his word, and then asking him to pour the power of his Holy Spirit into our lives that we can be free of sin, that we can be empowered for the work that he's given us to do so that we can go out into this terrified and broken world and bring them the message of the Savior. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this morning we would respond to you. God, having heard your word, I pray now that we would listen to what your spirit would speak to our hearts in regard to it. God, I pray that you would apply this to us, that you would speak to us each individually. God, that we would go out from here not just knowing more, 
but having come to a new place of submission to you. Inviting you to work within us. God, allow us the grace to respond to you. And Father, if you have given us specific ways to respond, that we would have the boldness to pursue that, to ask others to pray for us. Not only to call you Lord, Lord, but to do what you say. Work that in us, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.